Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. And we're off! We're off! Oh, God. Uh, it's like, yeah. I mean, this is a rare occasion when I was here before Nathaniel. And, um, oh. and I realise why I... Uh, why I always leave it to the last minute because it's like it's just like this countdown to this impending doom. And, 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 no, go on. But then it's uh, then it's over in two hours. But it just feels like just like the last minute before it turns the the, the, the it turns to the hour that we start. The last minute, it always drags, and then, uh, and then I get... Also, I mean, you don't need to know these listeners, but also starting an hour later than we usually would. And it's given me like, extra time to do stuff, which is a bad idea because it makes me late then because I've added more things into my morning and then I'm rushing. But, yeah. you know, it's fine, isn't it? It's fine. It's yeah. fine. We're both here now. It's all right. It's going to be like a normal fan club. You're listening to, um, you're listening to Fan Club. Uh, my name is Nick and this is... Nathaniel Metcalf. And you're, this is Nick and Nathaniel Metcalf's Fan Club. Fan Club. If that, is that what? Yeah, that's what it's called. And um, uh, first rule of fan club is uh, tell, you, tell your friends about tell fan friends. club. Tell your friends. Just simple, plain and simple. Uh, and the second rule of fan club is please. Please, for the love of God, for the love of tell friends. your friends. Tell the third rule of fan club is stay indoors again. That's what we've got. <laughs> which, I, which, as I, you're I, hearing this, you will be back in uh, lockdown if you're in the UK. Uh, and possibly in other countries as well, and depending proper, on where you're listening. A proper lockdown. A proper lockdown. Um, so that's exciting. Uh, but today is the day after the US election, uh, and so that's been all over the... I don't really understand how it works and uh, any of the ins and outs of, of it. I mean, but there you go. I don't either, and I feel almost to be a little bit informed is almost not worth it. To try yeah. and find out now is like, do you know what? I don't care the rest of the uh, four years, so I don't need to know now. I'll find out in due course. Uh, currently, we do not know the result, um, but on Friday you probably will. So we're we're in a sort of Schrodinger's cat box yes. in regards to news from America. Um, and we're recording this on Wednesday, the 4th of November. Um, we've had Halloween. We have not yet had bonfire night that we can't have. And we're currently not in lockdown. But when you hear this, we shall be back in lockdown. Do you know, Natalie, can you tell us if any of our Maltese listeners uh, will be in lockdown currently? Or I said we're all in lockdown, but maybe a big Maltese fan base might be free as a bird. How uh, well, are we doing in Malta? That's that's my big question. Are we still ahead of uh, everyone else, or are we still like the number one? Did we have more listeners than Joe Rogan once in Malta? Something yeah. like that, I think. Eighty-six, eighty-sixth in Malta this week. Is that comedy or is that all podcasts? That's. Just in comedy. Just in comedy. Oh, OK. Well, you know, I mean, I think that there's actually a lot of factual stuff that happens in this show. Um, we're really like current affairs in a way. We are. We're you know, talking about the election. If that current affair was happening in 1980... Um, <laughs> in a cinema. 
in, in some sort of cinema. Um, so uh, what have you been a fan of this week, Nathaniel? How, how are you? You all right? How do you feel about lockdown? I'm all right about it in the idea that it's a month. I feel like it needs to happen. And, you know, and I welcome whatever people need to do to make it work. Um, I feel a bit like I probably didn't really take advantage of not being in lockdown so much, very purposefully. Um, so it's a bit, ugh, it's a little bit gloomy. I'll see what it's like at the end of it. I think if it's a month and it has a big effect, great. And if it has a big effect, I'm happy to keep doing it. Uh, well, I say happy. I'm not happy about it, but I think it's probably necessary. So I am on board. I, I think it's one of them things which is just sort of like, yeah, if it, um, if it lowers the cases and uh, it helps people in the long run, then we just need to sort of do it to stop it escalating. But I also think that if we're going to just stay in for a month and then we're going to be let out, you know, is, is it kind of like... Are we in for a month and then out for a month and then in for a month and then out for a month? It's just mm. kind of like, it, it could be like this perpetually forever. Mm. Um, I don't know. It's pr- pretty, pretty tedious, isn't it? But um, Yeah. I mean, this is this has been my fear all along, like, of the idea of if you open up at a certain point and we're allowed to do certain things but not everything, whereas I think in other countries it feels like people seem to be much more back to normal it made me think, well, let's just stay locked down for longer and then we'll go back to, to normal. Um, Natalie's informed us, OK, that oh, Mo- and Malta have, as of today, oh, have recorded 84 new cases. So we don't know if they're in lockdown or not. But um, stay healthy, Malta. Um, yeah, where did I go? I had to go to Ikea the other day and everyone was wearing masks. But like, um, it was an absolute shit show. Like, it was it was more crowded than I would have seen it at Christmas. You know, like everyone is basically going. Well, if I'm going to be locked up for a month, I'm going to do some fucking DIY. And just the, the, there was a queue that was it went all the way. Uh, you know, you get that last warehouse. Have you been to like, IKEA? Yeah, that last warehouse section where you pick up all of, like, the shelves and the the chairs and stuff, and you've got these huge kind of, like, um, uh, uh, storage kind of uh, unit bits where everything is stacked up. So I guess it's like getting the keys to Argos and being able to go over the counter and look around in the warehouse back there. But the queues were just all through the aisles. That You know, like, it was just... That, like it got all the way through IKEA. It was horrible, horrific. People get banging into me, and um, like literally slamming. You know, I was trying to be invisible, basically, by kind of like staying very still, because um, uh, uh, I was uh, uh, um, I was with someone that was looking for stuff, and uh, so I just tried to keep out of the way, and people would just like slam right into me, and then you just think, oh right, we're in the final, we're in the final hurdle now. We can we can we can leave. And the queue was like an hour long, and fucking hell, it was horrible. And there were just cunts. You know, most people were wearing masks, but there were just some cunts that weren't wearing masks. And you just think, and there was like announcements continuously saying, you know, uh, in the in the in, in the um, in the interest of safety, health and safety, you know, it's you have to wear a mask. And there were just cunts that are just they were selling masks. 
And cunts that were just ignoring them and you're just like, for fuck's sake. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you are a cunt. Yeah. You know, everyone is wearing a mask except for you two. And yeah. you're just like acting like we're the pricks. And it's just kind of like, you're, you're, you're fucking scum. Yeah, the anti-mask people are like the worst people in the world, I think, at the minute. And I think it's the... Uh, and it all just boils down to... They, they've got reasons for doing it, but when you talk, when you like read anything they've written about it, they talk about it, it all just boils down to, you've just been told to do something you don't want to do. So you're making a, a sort of a virtue of not doing something, and it's just antisocial and selfish. Yeah. There's no, there's no other... It's like, just do it. And my thing is, like, and people talk about it as well, and they, they talk about it. Oh, the thing about masks is they're so, um, they're so uncomfortable, aren't they? And you go, no. It's like a bit of cloth. It's just not uncomfortable. It's like not even nearly the right word. It's perfectly fine. Yeah, and it's like uh, nobody really wants to wear a mask. Fine. But nobody really wants there to be like a global pandemic. So let's just fucking all wear a mask until it's over and then we can fucking go back to not wearing a mask. Yeah. It's like people... It's like... It's like the assumption is that, oh, some people really enjoy wearing masks. Somebody said to me, they said, um, do you hate wearing a mask because you get recognised less? And I said, no, I hate wearing a mask because I get recognised exactly the same amount. (laughs) 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 Um, But, yeah, anyway, so I I, I, I had the horrible Ikea thing, but, like, yeah, I guess everyone's just going to be doing fucking DIY for a month. Um, so what have you been a fan of this week, Nathaniel? Seen a bunch of stuff, really. Uh, on your recommendation, I watched You, you Be Halloween on Halloween. Shubi, and I thought your... You Be Halloween. And I thought your description of it last week was spot on, so it's probably not worth me adding anything, because I thought exactly what you said. It felt very nice and Halloween-y. And I did my other thing on Halloween where I watched... Oh, but hang on, hang on, because I wanted to ask you... Oh, um, yeah. So, so Hubie Halloween. This is a spoiler, but I mean, as mu- in as much as you can spoil uh, Adam Sandler comedy. Um, so, there's a cameo in it mm-hmm. um, from uh, Rob Schneider, right? Yeah. And so, so this is this sort of like a, a serial killer type guy that's wearing a mask and he's got long blonde hair, and he's wearing a mask, and you see that he's got blonde hair. And then about halfway through the film, he takes the mask off and you realise it's Rob Schneider, right? I thought, do you think that that is because um, the long blonde hair is meant to be kind of like a, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, It's meant to imply that it's David Spade. Oh. And that when he takes the mask off, you go, oh, it's not David Spade, it's Rob Schneider. (laughs) It might be. If it is, that's quite a good joke. Because I, I thought, because only, only in retrospect, because he's basically, he's got, for the rest yep. of the film, he's got this long blonde hair, and he basically, I was just thinking, why has he got, like, Owen Wilson hair? And then I was just like, well, maybe it's David Spade hair, and you're meant to assume that it's going to be a cameo from David Spade. Right, and then the big bait and switch is that, oh, no, it's not, it's the other one that's in all of his films. <laughs> it could be. I quite like that idea. It's... It, it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case. I like that idea. I, I mean, it would be have to be like one of the most sophisticated jokes <laughs> in any of his films. No, I can see that because there's no real reason for him to have long blonde hair otherwise, right? There's no reason for it at all. There's no reason at all. 
Uh, but I only thought about it afterwards, and I thought, oh, I hope... If that is the joke, then I think it's a funny joke. But um... It's a very, like, big-hearted film. has quite a sort of 80s-y thing to it, or something. It's very, like... I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of... It's big-hearted, big but I suppose a lot of his films are, right? They're kind of... That's yeah. part of his thing. They're quite sweet and very... They are, but but a lot of them have that like. We talked about it before. They they walk that knife edge between being really sweet, but they have their cake and eat it because they are actually quite kind of like um, uh, abusive as well. <laughs> Anyone that's different, but this. But I think that he's sort of like changing with the times. I guess having daughters and stuff has changed that as well. And it felt like he was the butt of the jokes again. You know. Yeah, as opposed yeah. to sort of like making fun of other people. But yeah, I just thought it was a really sweet film. Um, uh, and like genuinely creepy in places, which I thought was great. Yeah, I think that's a good line to tread as well. It's, yeah, it's not certainly not scary. It feels like the kind of Halloween movie you could show a kid and it would be fine. Yeah, but and there's so like, many sex jokes. I suppose. And so it's sort of like, I think that that is his version of a, a family film. Right, <laughs> but like his mum with all of the t-shirts, it's just yeah. kind of like. I mean, it's not a kids' film, but at the same time, it's not for adults. It's no, kind of... but I think a lot of the films that I grew up with, in hindsight, feel quite adult in compared with kids' films now. And you go, oh right, like a film like, like I what the first time I saw Gremlins was because it was a fifteen was on TV, and as an adult, I look back at it and go, oh, it's basically a kids' film, but. They really pushed the boundary of what was acceptable. It's yeah. that thing about talking about Poltergeist again, of being like almost like a Spielberg family film. Well, which is Poltergeist, Poltergeist was like a 15 in America. Mm. And there's a bit when a guy claws the skin off his own face and you're just like, going, how is that a fucking PG? Mm. Um, but it's sort of like uh, Back to the Future and Ghostbusters, where it's kind of like they're kids' films, they're 80s kids' films though. So yeah. there's like swearing and stuff in them. But they're still for kids, and it's kind of like that thing, isn't it? Where it's kind yeah. of like it's not like this overly sanitized kind of. Uh, I imagine that's probably it. That, that someone like Adam Sandler is making a film at Netflix, and he's thinking, "I'll be like a kids' film. But it'll be like the kind of kids' films that he grew up on." So it feels like I'll just do like a kids' movie, like that, like a Ghostbusters, um, yeah. Gremlins, and his daughters are in it. So mm. it's kind of like you know. He's not put anything in there. I think he just wanted to make a kid's film. Hmm. But <laughs> a kid's film with, you know, blowjob jokes in it. And, yeah. you know, it's just, uh, yeah, and anal sex jokes and stuff. And you go, OK, cool, right, brilliant. <laughs> if you're happy, then that's fine. Um, I think it's like, that, that's, you know, when you're a kid, I think a lot of the jokes like that go over your head. And it's only when you watch them back, you go, oh, I didn't realise... Um, I didn't realise Dan Aykroyd got a blowjob off a ghost. Um, and oh, I did. I, that made me feel really weird when... when the, but that was like a, a huge um, uh, deleted section of the film where uh, is it Ray and Winston go and spend the night at a haunted castle and then they just cut it and it became a montage, which I... You know, we may have talked about this before. I mean, I watched Anchorman yesterday um, uh, and... I don't know, I'm just not really much of a fan, but I think the main difference between Anchorman and Anchorman 2 is that with Anchorman, they made the film in the edit. They filmed so much, and then they made the film in the edit. And with Anchorman 2, they basically 
what you what you see is what they shot because everyone's schedules were so big and all over the place. And the same thing with Ghostbusters, where Ghostbusters, they tried out loads of stuff when they filmed it. And, like, um, Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray were playing separate characters, like homeless characters in Central Park. And then um, they just cut everything down. And so you get these, like, montage sequences, which... Um, that's not true with Ghostbusters 2, though, because there was a huge subplot with Eugene Levy playing uh, Rick Moranis' cousin. Mm. And I think that... But I think what they did with that was they filmed... Rick, Moran, Rick Moranis basically said that he wouldn't do the sequel unless his character was beefed up. So they wrote some additional scenes with Eugene Levy, and then they weren't always going to cut them, but they just did it to sort of, like, placate him. Um, but, yeah, I think it's kind of like one of those things where um, they just sort of, like, made stuff in the edit. I mean, I've forgotten what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it but, was. How did I get onto that? From UV Halloween. It made sense at the time. I knew where you were going with it. I don't know why I'm Ghostbusters. Oh, the, the uh, blowjob joke being. Oh, the blowjob joke. There. Yeah. No, that did make me feel really weird. But, like, um, I don't know. It's. it's it's just, you know what I mean? It just means that it goes over the heads of kids. It's not something that. Like, no. I kind of think it's fine. It's fine because if you, you either don't understand it because you're too young, yeah. and then later you do, and it just has a different meaning. So you're essentially watching two different films, and it's sort of harmless, because it's not like you're, you know... Yeah, it's not yeah, hard. It, it's kind of harmless anyway, really. Sure. But, like, but, um, but I did think that that T-shirt joke in Hubie Halloween was great. Like, every time it cut back to her, then, uh, and she's wearing a different T-shirt, I thought I that... Thought it was, was a really very funny, funny observation that all the women in it are dressed as Harley Quinn, and it yeah. then just becomes a running joke. Yeah, everyone is, and it's just that kind of. I guess that was maybe what was happening last Halloween, but it seems like really on the nose, and really of the moment that joke. Like, of course, yeah. of course, you know, I have, it's not even something I've witnessed. But as soon as you see it referenced, you go, "Of course, that must be true." Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, but also that running joke with the t-shirt is kind of like it gives that character something to do. Yes, you know what I mean. Yeah. It, it, it means that she's got a purpose to be in the film. Um, uh, rather than kind of like her having absolutely nothing to do for the majority of the film. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Talking, I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> it's not. A, it's not a work of genius. It's just a really kind of like enjoyable film. But like Hitchcock. No, but it's um, yeah. I did. I th- I thought that it sort of like it made enough of an effort to be funny, to be entertaining. It co- it catches. It catches a vibe, like a seasonal sort of, like, feeling. And um, there were some, like, genuinely kind of, like, uh, spooky bits in it where you go, oh, wow, that's that's really well done. Um, so, so I thought it sort of like went above and beyond. I don't know whether it's because my expectations for those sorts of films have been sunk so low. But... Um, I think that he's one of them people that if he does do something good, you should actually acknowledge it because he yeah, needs to have some sort of, I think he does read reviews and he needs to have some sort of barometer of when he's doing well. <laughs> I mean, it re- really made me think, oh, I'm going to watch more of these, but then I'm so kind of reluctant to watch the bad ones. There you go. Like, when you watch a good one, you go, I could happily do another two hours of this. Like, it just feels like there's another... You know, it's almost like I probably need to get a list of the good ones. Um, I never saw um, Ridiculous Six, 
partly so, because you told me not to. And I was like, all right, I don't need to see it. But in principle, I like the, the sound of it. Yeah. I mean, it came out the same year as Hateful Eight. And you go, Ridiculous Six, yeah, I know what that is. That's, you know, it's the Magnificent Seven. Right, great, brilliant. And then you watch it and you go, fucking hell, how is it two and a half hours long? <laughs> mental, absolutely mental. Anyway, what else have you seen this week? Um, I watched... Uh, what did you watch on Halloween? I watched that and I watched um, two Hammer Horrors that I'd never seen. One which was Lust for a Vampire, which is all right. It's all right. And I watched one that was really good called The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll, which feels actually like one of those good ones that you could recommend to people that don't like Hammer movies. Right. Like, oh, it's just a really good film. It's just really, it, and it's really ahead of its time as well, really feels like it's quite boundary-pushing and quite shocking for that you go, oh, this must have been really, uh, you know, m- must have been quite mind-blowing at the time. It's quite a sort of smart script that they've actually, they paid someone a lot, paid a guy called Wolf Mankovic, who was a big kind of screenwriter at the time to do it. And he did this sort of Jekyll and Hyde where, I mean, it's kind of similar to something like The Nutty Professor, but it's about um, different kind of Victorian societies, and he's just good. He's good-looking. Mr. Hyde's essentially good-looking, right. and Dr. Jekyll isn't. And it's it's a sort of undersized, seedy Victorian London and how it's all very kind of... It's two-faced in itself, so it's saying two faces. It's how, you know, you sort of... If you're rich, you can kind of get away with stuff. Right, it's sort of and like that kind of. It's got political. It's got um, yeah. social commentary. Yeah, and you um, go, oh, it's actually quite a, a smart. It's it's aiming higher than a lot of those hammers are. Do you remember that Michael Caine, um, Jekyll and Hyde thing? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. And so he made that, and then he also made Jack the Ripper, right? Mm. Jack the Ripper was first, I think. But was and it sort of like a spiritual sequel? Yeah, it was sort of like a. That was good. So let's do another one in the same vein. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I just remember them being on TV at a certain point and it and feeling like I think they were massive at the time because they were like late eighties and at a time when Michael Caine is still like a movie star mm. in Hollywood. So I think the idea that you've got him to do a couple of um, TV gothic things seems like what a coup for ITV, you know, to have this sort of yeah. big movie star come back and do these TV shows. I remember, yeah, I remember them really, really, really freaking me out. Yeah. Especially Jekyll and Hyde. I can't really remember Jack the Ripper that much. I just remember whenever he changed, he got really sweaty. Mm. But maybe this is just a this is just a misremembered thing, but I just remember the transformation sequence has been really bizarre. Have you ever seen Curse of the Werewolf? Is it Curse of the Werewolf with Oliver Reed? Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. I've never seen that, right? So tell me about that. Uh, that is... Um... Oliver Reed sort of his starring role, because he's... I think his first hammer is Two-Faces Dr. Jekyll, which he shows up for, like, a couple of scenes. But I think he made eight movies for Hammer right at the beginning of his career. Right. Sort of before, so he's not really a star, and I think his first starring role is Curse of the, Curse of the Werewolf. And in that, it's about this sort of... Um, it's completely separate from things like The Wolfman, and it's more seems to be based on a kind of gypsy curse or something. So it's it's this sort of... It's a thing where if you're born on Christmas Day, you have some sort of werewolf element to you or something. It's that sort of... And it's all very... Um, I think it's set in sort of Spain, I think. And it's... Um, 
and it's one of like the universal hammers. So it's when Hammer had loads of distributors, they basically worked with all the big American distributors. And the ones that they made through Universal, they really took advantage of those properties that Universal had. Right. So they do things like Evil of Frankenstein, where Frankenstein starts looking, he's got the kind of square Boris Karloff head again. Right, yeah. And uh, that David Prowse? Yeah, yeah, it is. And and I think they did Curse of Werewolves, simply because I haven't done a werewolf film before. And they get to be like, oh, it's like a Universal werewolf movie. But it doesn't seem to have anything in common with the Wolfman. Does it, is it filmed um, in Bray? Oh, yeah, they're all, like, films. They're all filmed at that. I don't know if it will be Bray. At some point, they move away from Bray. But, again, they just move to another old house. Right. <laughs> I think Bray's the very earliest ones, I think. Oh, right. so I think that's the early 60s. I think that's a little bit later. But yeah. at, t- at the time, they're trying to... Uh, they're kind of moving away slightly from Cushing and Lee because they're just working so much elsewhere and they're trying to get new stars in. So that's one where they've basically got Oliver Reed, who's been like a co-star in a lot of them, and they've kind of ushered him up to the, the top spot. But I think for Oliver Reed, it's pretty much like his first starring role. Yeah. That's good. Right, so I've got... Because I've got a Hammer box set, but it doesn't come with the Hammer box set. And I think I like... Um, werewolf. Mm. So, out of the original Universal, I think Wolfman is probably my favourite. But I also really love Invisible Man. Actually, all Man films mm. from uh, Universal. But that original one with Claude Rains is just, I think, just oh, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. That's brilliant. And, and especially, well, what's great about the Invisible Man movies is that you can really see the. Um, the special effects and the technology evolve over the films, and they actually get better and better in terms of special effects. The, the films don't necessarily get better. The second one with Christo- uh, with Vincent Price in it is really great, but I really I really like those original ones. And then, um, uh, so I really like werewolf films, American Werewolf in London, The Howling a little bit. I'm not huge on The Howling, but I, I like the idea of werewolf films, but they're sort of like really difficult to get right, I think. And um, and I really like the remake, the Wolfman remake with Benicio del Toro, um, even though it's like deeply flawed. But I just even find like the making of that film really fascinating. I do. I mean, I do. I think that's. But you can kind of see the film in it. I think. I think you can see like it's very easy to watch the good film in it. You can yeah. totally see what's what they're going for. And I think it's like I think it's a pretty successful film. I liked it a lot when I saw it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I it's a shame it. that it becomes like a. It's a shame that it's CGI in the end. Yeah, because well, it's because it's, it's aged, but it's aged worse than American Werewolf in London. Mm. I find like you can see. I don't think the special effects in American Werewolf in London are flawless, but like, and I think that the design of the actual wolf is kind of a bit. Um, you know, he's got like really broad shoulders. It's like there's somebody in it that's sort of like walking around on all fours, as opposed to it being like an actual animal. So I think it's kind of like, yeah, it's not perfect, but. Um, it's definitely aged really well, whereas you look at the CGI and the Wolfman from 10 years ago, and it's just aged so badly. Mm. Um, but the making of the film is sort of fascinating, where Joe Johnston... Was it Mark Romanek? Yeah, who came first? R- Mark Romanek was originally meant to be on it, uh, and he was brought on by Benicio Del Toro. And then he had creative differences with Universal, walked off the project, and Joe Johnson had something like two weeks to prep it. Right. 
I mean, Joe Johnson's one of those people. I like, I think he's like, he's brought in, he's like a journeyman director. And yet I really like his movies. I just think he's always like, there's something about his sort of aesthetic or something that always makes me think, I love it. I love The Rocketeer. I love Captain America, The First Avenger, which is basically like The Rocketeer. Um, I like The Wolfman. I like Jurassic Park 3. It's like he's not trying to do... I think it's what you keep saying about like people that do like B-movies. He's yeah. just really good at them. I just think he's he's almost like he should be your first choice, really, to do who this did, sort of material. Who did Young Sherlock Holmes? Was that Christopher Columbus or was that... Was it Christopher Columbus? I think Young Sherlock... Is it Barry Levinson? Is it? I think it might be, you know. What, who did the, who did the Flintstones? Yeah, things so. was that no is that Brian? Oh, we've had this conversation. Barry before. Barry Levinson is it? It is Barry. Says it's Barry Levinson. All right, sure. Okay. I think it's Columbus writing it, isn't it? I think it's. I think it's yeah. all that lot. All well, that's that. a great film, Young Sherlock Holmes. I haven't seen it in ages. I haven't seen it in ages. Oh, that's I've I've seen it within the, like the last three years, and I think it's like it's aged really well. I just thought it was one of those really great films. Like, that's, that's what we're talking about, really. It's kind of like, in terms of kids' films, it was spooky and it was, um, uh, there was, like, real danger and threat in there, but it was also just, like, this really sort of magical kids' film. It was, um, yeah, the young Sherlock Holmes... Because it's it, it potentially shit, do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, you've done a Sherlock Holmes Jr. kind of story, but I just thought it was... I thought it was brilliant. They, um, I was in a pub a few years ago, probably about two or three years ago now, and one of my mates said... Sherlock Holmes is behind you. And as I turn around, you look around thinking, what are you going to look at? Who are you going to see? What actor is it going to be? Is it someone who looks a bit like Sherlock Holmes? Is it just someone with a deer stalker on? What are you going to see when you turn around when someone says that? And it was the bloke who was young Sherlock Holmes. And it was like, no. Hadn't changed a bit. Just older, but exactly the same face. Yeah. Incredible. Please, did, you, please um, punch. did you get his autograph? No, I didn't. Didn't. No. Um, Exciting, though. Uh, let's play a song and then um, keep talking. <laughs> that's, that's the, the job we've got to, haven't we? That's, that's the point of the show. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Bar Radio. Oh, we're off. We're back again. Uh, Natalie says that that song sounded like uh, Marilyn Manson. And yes, it was from his Brutal Planet album from 2000, uh, where he was basically playing catch up with. Uh, he hadn't done like an album since uh, Last Temptation in 1994, 93. And so he was like basically, he'd, been, he'd had health problems and stuff. And he'd released some live albums, and then he basically was like, right, I'm going to start recording albums again in 2010. And he was just basically playing catch-up with whatever was popular at the time. So he did sort of like a couple of industrial metal albums that were basically, oh, Marilyn Manson is big at the moment, so I'll try and sound a bit like him. Uh, but I think I hated Brutal Planet when I first heard it, and then uh, I ended up doing Edinburgh in 2004, and it was the only CD that I'd taken with me to Edinburgh. <laughs> and so I listened to it, like, every day until I eventually... I think it's one of his best albums now. I think it's great. Um, but, you know, so if you don't like something at first... Um, bring it's not shit forever. Just, just listen to it over and over and over again on repeat. And, then, <laughs> um, and it might get better. It might, or get it better. might be awful. It might just be a terrible thing you've done yourself. 
Um, so, um, what did I, so I saw, I've seen quite a lot this week in terms of, I really like the idea. Part of what I liked about Hubie Halloween was that it really captures kind of Halloween in a way that um, a lot of... I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre this month. Um, I think that is such a good film. But I don't... It's, it's kind of like a summer film, you know. Um, I, I don't... I don't feel like just because it's a horror film that it really encapsulates, you know, that not all horror is kind of, like, appropriate for Halloween, I think. Um, I think it's got to sort of, like, evoke the the season. But um, So I watched the remake of The Invisible Man uh, this week. The most recent one? Mm-hmm. And like I said, it's one of my favourite Universal movies. Mm-hmm. And... When you watch it, um, I I thought it was brilliant, right, at the remake. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I think it's genuinely scary. Um, I think she is incredible, the main actress. Um, Elizabeth Moss. uh, She was in Get Out as well, wasn't she? She, She's she's in the... the, um... Us. She's in the follow-up thing, isn't it? The the next. Could I say Get Out? Yeah, she's in Us. And then she plays Shirley Jackson, right? Yeah, I saw that film yesterday. Yeah, and what? I love Shirley Jackson. She's incredible. I thought it was a terrible film, but, I mean, people love it. I don't know what they like about it. It's like, she's great. She's always been great in stuff. I know her from Mad Men, where she's Peggy in Mad Men, Hmm. and she deserves lots of success. And I feel this Shirley Jackson film is her saying, listen, I've done all this stuff. I've done, um, uh, you know, I'm sort of, I haven't really had my due yet. And so what I'm looking for is, like, an Oscar. And they've given her, like, an Oscar movie where rather than being what she's like in every other film, she does this quite a big performance. Right. And it's just like, nah. Really? I just I just thought the film was really... I thought it was kind of lame, very silly. And That's really, a shame. Yeah, I, I think it's a shame. I was looking forward to it. That's a shame. But I think if it highlights Shirley Jackson and it kind of, like, it puts a bit of a spotlight on her, then mm. I think that's great. Yeah. She wasn't really... Um, she wasn't really appreciated within her own lifetime. Mm-hmm. She used to write sort of short stories uh, that got published in newspapers and stuff, and then she became an alcoholic, and she wasn't really acknowledged mm-hmm. at the time, and then she became a lot more successful. You know, well, this is a funny one. There's been lots of stuff recently, isn't there? There was stuff about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which sort of changes all the kind of um, history of Hollywood, real-life people, and there's been that same thing recently about the... There's been this trailer for this David Bowie film and everyone's saying, David Bowie never wanted a movie made, but they're making a movie of it and how disgusting it is. You watch a Shirley Jackson film and you just go, this isn't real. And you read the synopsis and it's like, no, it's all like made up by a screenwriter. And yet it's a thing where, because she's not terribly famous, I feel like this will become fact. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. More likely that people... People know what happened to Bruce Lee... Or, and they know about David Bowie. And I, and this has had this thing as well where I read after I saw it that, that I think Shirley Jackson's kids are like, I really don't like the way that like their parents have been portrayed in the film. And I, was, I read it and went, I totally get that. Well, I watched it more like, there's been no fuss about this whatsoever. And yet it's, it feels much more the case than those <laughs> other films I mentioned. Well, it's like so obviously fictional, do you know what I mean? Whereas if yeah. you don't know the person that much and you're watching a drama about them, you'd assume that this must be true. But I was just watching it just felt, this feels like nonsense. That's the danger of 
That's the danger of films, really. Is uh, you know stuff like U five seven one, where it's kind of like they rewrote it so it was the Americans that uh, stole the Enigma code, and it was kind of like, um, well, fine, it's a film, it's a fictionalized version of accounts, but it's based on a true. Why would why would you make those changes? Why wouldn't you just? And I think that. As, I don't know if it's worse, but it's kind of like when you're dealing with an actual historical figure who you're kind of like shining a light on their life, you sort of like owe it to them. If you're gonna if you're gonna yeah. make something out of their name and their legacy, you sort of owe it to them to try and get it as right as possible. I think. I just think it's it's odd that it's, it seems to be not controversial in a way that those other films have been controversial. When it's it feels like this, you know, this almost feels more important to do it because it's not someone who is super famous already. Whereas, you know, I think most people that would see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood who know any of the real people involved would know that isn't... that They, they would get... understand very swiftly that this is a fictionalised idea of them. Well, I think a lot of people thought that the entire thing was made up, mm. um, which was sort of like the dangerous thing about that film. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that film, but um, I, I do know that I liked about 90% of it, and then I just I hated the ending. But um, but anyway, so The Invisible Man is incredible. I just thought it was really creepy, an amazing like central performance. I thought it was genuinely scary. And when you watch it, you're sort of, like, retrospectively even more embarrassed for the Tom Cruise mummy movie, where <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. kind of like, how did you fuck that up so badly? You know, it had, like, a tenth of the budget and it basically focused on, well, let's just make a really low-budget, creepy kind of horror movie. Mm. And they just n- knocked it out of the park. I think it's just... I think it's, I think it's brilliant. There was a lot of people saying it's kind of, like, written for the Me Too generation. There's, like, a backlash of it then. But it's kind of like the film is about an invisible man who goes crazy and murders people. That is what the... That is, that is the concept of the, of the, the film and the story. Hmm. You know, the original story is that, and that's what this film is. It's, I just think it's it's brilliant. I really like the look at it. I haven't seen it yet, but it's on my list of things to watch. Oh, and I like it. It feels it should be very modern and things, and if you're going to do an old-fashioned story and have it contemporary, this is what people are talking about right now. Let's do a film that's based around the concept and put it in a, in a, in a situation of talking about what everyone's talking about now. Makes it's sense. Def- you know, it's, right? definitely, it's definitely the way that they should have gone with all of these Universal remakes. You just think, I mean, who... I, it's, they're horror franchises, you know? Um, and so it's kind of like, I don't... I, I don't want... I don't want an action-adventure kids film made out of that sort of stuff. It's kind mm-hmm. of like... It's, it's, it, is what, it is what it is, and so you should treat it the way... Uh, it was it was intended. You don't, I don't want to have like a, a Tom Cruise action adventure thing. And I also, they, for an action adventure thing, they already did it with Brendan Fraser. So oh. it's just kind of like you haven't got a new take on it. It's kind of you haven't sort of like reinvented something. You've, it's kind of like a pale imitation of something that was okay. It's twenty years ago now, which is fucking crazy. But um, but it's still fresh in everyone's memory. And it did feel really weird at the time that that was what they did with it. Because it was, I mean, I guess it's for there was a generation where that is what the mummy is, is Brendan Fraser. But it felt weird that you were kind of getting what looked like a Tom Cruise remake of a Brendan Fraser film. Filled, absolutely, seemed absolutely insane because it just felt, you know, they're kind of B movies as well, aren't they? And to have like Tom Cruise 
the world's biggest movie star starring in a what looked to be a remake of a Brendan Fraser film. It's crazy. It looks mad. It's crazy. And then they rip off stuff like American Werewolf in London in it, and you go, who's this for? Because if you're a fan of the genre, if you're a horror fan, you've definitely seen American Werewolf in London. And so to watch this huge... It felt like bullying. It was just kind of like... It was like, it was like this, is the, this is a huge multi-million dollar movie starring Tom Cruise, and he's gone around the playground and he's stolen everyone's sweets and he's going, no, they're mine. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like... Th- th- there's jokes and stuff that, was done, that were done much better 40 years ago in a smaller film. Which is like cult status, and it's kind it's of. It's a like... shame. I mean, I really like the idea of that dark universe thing, as it was unfolding, but it just killed it off immediately. Immediately, and you just think, oh god. I mean, I like the idea of a dark universe, but I don't want another six movies like this. This is fucking terrible. Um, anyway, so what else did I see on Halloween? I watched uh, Reanimator and uh, Brain Dead. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. And I, th- I kind of think that Reanimator is sort of like a perfect kind of Halloween film. It's funny, it's dark, and it's scary. Um, uh, it sort of like just ticks loads of boxes. I do really like that film. It's not like um, I would, I would. Um, it's sort of similar-ish in tone to maybe like an Evil Dead Two, but it's not as good as Evil Dead Two. But it is, it is really, it's really enjoyable. And um, Brain Dead just is so disgusting. But actually, it was a lot less disgusting than I remembered it, but it is still fucking absolutely disgusting. <laughs> um, and it's weird watching it in the context that it's Peter Jackson and then yeah. he went on to do The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbits and all that other stuff because you kind of, like, you watch it and you go, where's this? Where's that filmmaker gone? Um, and, um, and then I hadn't ever seen Bride of Reanimator, so I watched Bride of Reanimator, which is a really odd film because it doesn't doesn't really have a story and there are kind of like every single scene is very weirdly paced and stilted and in the in the original there's sort of like a lot of campy performances but in Bride of Reanimator there were actually some bad performances and they set stuff up that never gets paid off like there's a bit near the end where um, the, the syringe smashes on the floor and there's a big close-up of the syringe that's smashed on the floor, and you think that's going to come back at some point, and it never does. And so it just feels like sort of like an unfinished film. Um, and the ending sort of comes out of nowhere. It's just, it's just like, it, it's, I was sort of disappointed. But there's another one called Beyond Reanimator, which I haven't seen either, and that is next on my sort of list to see. And then, um, so, yeah, I, I was sort of disappointed with Bride of Reanimator. I, I bought it on DVD years and years ago, and I never sort of, like, got through it. And then to actually sit down and sort of, like, force myself to watch it, I was kind of like, oh, it's, oh, it's not very good. That's, that's probably why I've never sort of, like, got beyond <laughs> like, the first ten minutes. Um, there's this, like, weird bit where they're in kind of, like, uh, South America during this civil war, um, and it's kind of like the, the prologue. And that goes absolutely nowhere. It's like it's never referenced again. They, they end up working back at the same hospital from the original. Um, it's kind of weird. It sort of steals the structure a little bit from Bride of Frankenstein, where, um, where she turns up for, like, the last ten minutes at the end of the film. You think Bride of Frankenstein is going to all be about the Bride of Frankenstein, but in actual fact, she just... Put, pops up right at the end and then kills herself. And um, and Bride of Reanimator sort of 
they make a little bit more out of the Bride of Reanimator, but not a lot more. So she's in it for like maybe twenty minutes at the end. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a weird it's a weird one. I mean, I, I wouldn't I don't really recommend it, but I'm gonna go and watch Beyond Reanimator because because um, I still I think maybe they I don't know it was a belated sequel. It was made like in the two thousands. Um, so I'll, I'll give that a go. And then the other thing I saw yesterday, I was making the most out of the fact that it's our last chance to do anything for a while. And I went to uh, watch Lost Boys at Prince Charles Cinema. Oh, yeah. And it's basically, I looked around to see what was on, and it was the only thing that was kind of like, that I really fancied. I think Tenet, by the end of the year will probably be the most lucrative film of all time. It's just in I the cinema. Me too. I think it's I think it's that's the way they had to think about it. It's just I think it was mad that the the, the cinemas and the, the distributors pulled everything. Because I just think Tenet's just it's the only thing in the cinemas still. Still. Um, IMAX, still at IMAX, still yeah. at Tomorrow Over the Road, still at all of the cinemas in central London. And, and it's, throughout it's the, the country. Thing, it's the only thing to watch. It's the only thing to fucking watch. You're going, with, with, when, they, when they give the Oscars out, it's going to go to Tenet and the Trolls movie. <laughs> it's like those are the only two things that are fucking... Yeah, it's, I, I, and I think it's that way of going, oh, it's, it's done really badly because it's opening weekended badly. And it's like, well, of course it did, because it can only possibly have um, 40% of capacity in every screen anyway because of social distancing. But rather than think about it like that, you've got this idea that it, it, the tail on it is huge because it's still playing. It opened in August and it's still playing in November. It's fucking it's mental. It's the only game in town. It's mental. But anyway, so it's on Lost Boys, which I've always sort of liked, but I've never kind of like thought about it beyond that. It's kind of a cult film that people bring up. It's like one of those 80s films that, you know, um, that I think that it's got more of a reputation than it has maybe a fan base. And um, I watched it yesterday. I thought it was absolutely fucking incredible. I think it's a brilliant film. I think it's really clever. It's like this multi-generational kind of film. It's, it's kind of like, it's a comedy, it's a teen movie. You've got two brothers. One of them's kind of like the big, big brother, Jason Patrick, and then you've got Corey Haim, who's the little brother. And, uh, and then you've got the mum, Diane Weist, and that's, all three of them move to, like, a new place. And you see it from the young brother's point of view, the teenage brother's point of view, and the mum's point of view, where all three of those storylines all get brought together in the last, uh, last act of the film. And it's kind of... I think that it's, it's genius, because it's sort of like... You could see it as kind of like... Um, like a like a metaphor for uh, drug abuse, you know, where the brother becomes a vampire and um, you see how it affects the mum and how he starts treating his mum and how he starts treating his little brother and then the little brother is trying to save his big brother and um, the mum is trying to date. And it's just, I, I just think that I've never, I've never, I think I've probably seen it in bits over the years and I've seen it, edited for ITV or something with adverts in. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've ever sort of like... 
I know I had it on VHS. I don't know how many times I've sat through and watched it from beginning to end. This is the I haven't seen it in maybe fifteen years. Yeah, I think this is the first time I've ever sort of like what maybe because I'm older, but it's I like one of the first times. And I hadn't seen it in years and years. And I read up about it because something seemed a bit odd about it. And, and apparently, it was written to be for younger kids. Right. And when it was like, and when you think of it that way, I went, "Oh, right. That obviously started life to be a bit like a." The Goonies or something, and it has that kind of. Again, it feels a bit more adult because it's because it ended up being rewritten to be for like older teenagers. But it does still have those trappings, I think, of, of being a slightly younger kids movie. And I get yeah. get that through the Corey Haim character. So yeah, yeah. like I say, yeah, it's multi generational, isn't it? It's got that kind of. It definitely has because you've got Corey Feldman in it as well. So it definitely has sort of like that Goonies vibe, mm. but you, it also manages to be a teen sort of drama about falling in with the wrong crowd. And Diane Weist is so good in that film. You know, she had, like, this period in the late 80s, early 90s, where she was just sort of, like, doing... She was working with Woody Allen a lot, and then, obviously, she was in uh, Edward Scissorhands, which she's incredible in. Um, Parenthood, she's great in that. Parenthood, um, where she's playing mums, but they're all very different mums, you know? Um... And, yeah, she's just absolutely incredible. And Kiefer Sutherland is in it for, like, ten minutes. Like, he's hardly in the film. Um, and he's brilliant in it. Like, it's just... I just thought... I just thought it was it was so... It was so much better than I remembered. And it really holds together as a, as a film. And the fact that it's doing three things all at once, and it ties together so neatly at the end. It's just sort of like... I just... And it's Joel Schumacher, who... Obviously, will forever. Um, he died this year. He'll forever have his CV stained with Batman and Robin. But I mean, he did make some really great films, and I think maybe Lost Boys is. Well, well I guess he was sort of, he's sort of responsible more than most directors are for for a lot of that kind of eighties teen movies, isn't he? Well, he did Saint Elmo's like, Fire. Yeah. He did, uh, which was sort of like Saint Elmo's Fire was the one where it brought in pretty much every single member of the Brat Pack in one movie, mm. and then you know Lost. Oh, it's, not great, it's not a great film, but um, but Lost Boys is brilliant. Falling Down is incredible, um, you know. So he's he, yeah. I th- I think that I've kind of like underestimated Lost Boys, but I just thought it was absolutely fantastic, um, and it just really it really holds up. Really holds up, Matt, uh, and I really thoroughly enjoyed it. It was one of my nicest experiences that I've ever had at the Prince Charles, probably because it was half full. Um, and I think, but it was weird because how you know how rowdy those audiences are. Yeah. And like, I felt like I was the person in the cinema that enjoyed it the absolute most. Yeah. Like I, I was often the only person laughing <laughs> during the during the comedy bits. You know. And you kind of like, and nobody booed the special effects, which is good yeah. because. But the special effects hold up really well. But like, I don't know. I just thought it was You're like just laughing at bits for no reason and sort of loudly laughing. And well, I felt like I was the annoying prick <laughs> today, and I was just like, oh, that's a shame. That's was at Prince Charles. It's obviously a thing that because it is. I think it's a shame that they do attract that kind of audience. Last time I was there, it even had like a warning beforehand. Like, like it was, there was like a little trailer to say. Don't be a prick when you're watching these films. Yeah, it's it's a, obviously because other people have said it. It's from Cape Fear. They do the Max yeah. Cady bit. They, they do the bit where Max Cady is laughing with a cigar and they show that and then it says, <laughs> don't, be, don't be Max Cady. And, uh, yeah, it's funny, but, like, it's true. I mean, 
I mean, it's good. I mean, I'm glad they've done that because it obviously shows that the people who run it are aware that a lot of their audience get annoyed at people. <laughs> yeah, but I've I've seen that trailer and it's still been an unplayable gig. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I've still I've seen that trailer and still had to walk out of a screening because it was so <laughs> annoying. Uh, but yeah, there you go. Anyway, so it's uh, time to do some uh, fan mail. <laughs> got some fan mail this week. Uh, so, Brian, uh, are you ready to do your fan mail? Yes, I'm, I'm all right. I can do... I can't do... Uh, oh, I'm not feeling myself today. Okay. The laryngitis or something. You're back. I just You're right, right. Workouts. I haven't... Uh, did you know what? This is the first time I've spoken all day. You know what? Uh, you know what it's like. Yeah. When you, the first time you speak all day and you're kind of like, uh, oh, is that what I sound like? Oh, it's uh, taking me a bit place to play. Oh, just uh, not feeling... Not feeling myself today, so bear with me as I get through the fan. Of course, yeah, no. Okay, okay. So, dear Nick, Nat, Brian. And Christopher. You berated me last week for not asking anything deeper than how you're doing. This is a very slow way of having a conversation with someone, isn't it? Um, for not, uh, you berated me last week for not asking anything deeper than how you're doing. So to make amends, here's a question for each of you. Brian, what is your favourite Christopher Lee film and why? Christopher, what is your favourite ACDC album and why? Nick, what is your favourite Hammer film and why? Nat, what is your favourite Alice Cooper album and why? Cheers, John Dumpa. I think the problem John's done this week is he's asked too many questions. Too many questions, John! <laughs> Come on, man! I like uh, The Man with the Golden Gun because I love a bit of Bond, me, do you? I'm, I think it's a bit overrated. Oh, no, I love a bit of Bond. Literally the only, the only Christopher Lee film other than the Draculas that I could think of off the top of my head. And uh, so, Christopher, what is your uh, favourite ACDC album of mine? Um, well, of course, Brad, I like all of your albums. But yeah, my favourite... album! <laughs> well, my favourite of yours would probably have to be um, the best of ACDC. <laughs> well, that's a bit surprising, because you are into your music there, Chris. As I know that you've recorded several heavy metal albums of your own. That's right. Plus, you guested on uh, the Hollywood Vampires album, which I do a track on. So I find it actually a little bit disrespectful. It's not disrespectful. I just prefer your. Uh, it to me, it is the best. <laughs> Fine, fair enough. Nick, what is your favourite Hammer film and why? I like the Nanny. Um, I think that that's really creepy. Um, and aside from that, hmm, I don't really, I'm not really into Hammer, but um, I like Hammer. Um, what was the one that I saw? No, I'm going to stick with the nanny. I can't think of any. <laughs> oh, um, one million years BC, was that Hammer? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I like that. I like uh, Raquel Welch and uh, stop motion dinosaurs. Who does? Come on. Um, and then, so, yeah, what's your favourite Alice Cooper album? Nat. Uh, favourite Alice Cooper album? I don't know, really. Do you know what? I, I've always quite liked Alice Cooper, but knew him mainly as a sort of single person and knew his sort of hits. And I've always, I've always been quite fond of him. I would say that since doing this, I'm always surprised, never follow it up, by the breadth of, of stuff he's doing. And there's been lots of stuff that I've really liked. So I suspect it's probably something I haven't discovered properly yet. An app 
absolutely pathetic answer. Okay, so uh, moving briskly on. Hello, I'm a listener in Finland and think your show is mighty fine. Would you be interested in coming to our annual wife carrying contest when it resumes next year? Fingers crossed. I have an attic you could lie in. Thank you. Kitas? Elias. Elias. Um, uh, no. no Afternoon. No, I've started watching the show called Swedish Dicks on Netflix. It stars Peter Stormare and Keanu Reeves. I think you should watch it and tell us about it next week. Nasty. Okay. Maybe. Hello. I'm not sure when you will read this out. Now. Or maybe you won't care to. I remember ages ago on your show you were talking about romping. I really miss you talking about it and doing it. When will we be able to have a carefree romp again? Declan's bees. I love Treasure Island. Okay. Oh, that's nice. I, I, I like Treasure Island. Uh, do you mean the book, the film, or the place? Good question. Good question. Uh, maybe you could... Uh, Clarify that next week, um, Declan Peace. Um, okay, great. Well, let's play a song and then we'll get our guest on. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. And we're off. We're back again. Oh God! Uh, uh, here we are, live. We're not live. We're pre-recorded uh, from the studio. We're not in the studio. I'm in my living room, and uh, Nathaniel is in his washroom. And we're now joined uh, with our guest for today: comedian, actor, writer, and producer Janet Varney. Hello, Janet. How are you doing? Hello. I'm very well. I'm so torn between staring at almost nothing uh, behind Nathaniel and everything behind you, Nick. I mean, there, there's a lot of I, what a trove back there. I really want to rifle yeah. through everything like a raccoon. You've sure. got a very impressive wallpaper, Janet, behind you. This is, is a curtain. A curtain. This is just a. Oh well. The curtain to this is very like Wizard of Oz. Behind me is it's a lovely. I don't know what's on the. If I'm the wizard, I guess on the other side is where Dorothy and Toto and the gang are. So yeah, yeah. yes, you're controlling it all. I'm controlling it all, always. And by all, I mean I control all everything that's happening right now. Okay, I'm glad someone's glad someone's in charge. That's a welcome relief. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, let's not talk about who's in charge on the day after Election Day uh, in America. Okay. How are you feeling about that? Awful. Yeah. Just awful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not over yet, but it's, you know, I can't, I don't know how many times this country has to be told, you know, the polls seemed actually off for some reason. It's very surprising. Like, oh, no, we've, we don't, we, did we not learn that polls mean nothing? But. Yeah. So I'm really worried that Trump won't win, but my fingers are crossed, and (laughs) hopefully we'll have another great four years. Okay. It's um, it's stressful watching it from England, so um, where are you? Thanks for caring. I'm in Los Angeles. You're in Los Angeles. And uh, and you've been up for a couple of hours already. It's 8 o'clock in the morning where you are, 4 o'clock in the afternoon where we are, Um, and you've been up for a couple of hours. You're an early riser, you just said. Um, Bit of an early riser didn't used to be true, but uh, quarantine encouraged me to get out into the world before everyone else because I like a little solitude in a morning walk, and that was becoming harder and harder to get. So, and I, I've been, I strongly approve of people getting exercise. So I, I don't resent people for going out and wandering around in the streets of Los Angeles, but I, I liked a little, a little more solitude. 
As in space. That's right. I would say that tips a, a little too far into too much solitude for me. If we're if we're looking at the scale, the space to crowded streets. If we're it's Shibuya crossing in Japan and space here, I'm probably right in the middle. Okay, of course, yeah, of course, it's quite. It, you do have quite a lot of space in Los Angeles, anyway. I suppose. Yes, yes, we are. It's it's a sprawl, but I live right near Griffith Park, which is a very large uh, space for hiking and. Um, it makes a huge difference for me. Do you, so do you live on the outskirts? I live... <laughs> I have a view of the Hollywood sign from my house, which um, is not a perk, uh, if, if, especially on a bad day in the business. If you come home feeling like everyone's against you and then you look up, it just feels like a, you're living a satire. Was uh, it... But when you first moved in, was it like, well, incredible, I've made it? Uh, nope. I've, I moved to Los Angeles more cynical than I am now. I've become less cynical as my career has maintained itself. So, uh, I would say it was even worse when I, when I moved in, I was like, whoa, boy, how quickly can the, how quickly can the Ivy bushes grow upward? And the answer is fairly quickly. And I have to really crane my neck to see now the sign. If I really, if I want to. I'm a particularly positive person, but I feel I'd be like, like, lifting my top hat and up and down or something every time I saw a Hollywood sign outside my window. I got to get a top hat. I don't know why I have not uh, brought that into circulation for an everyday thing so I can tip it at the Hollywood sign. That's probably why I'm not as optimistic. If I had that top hat, it probably affects the level of oxygen that goes to the brain. I would be euphoric. Nathaniel doesn't have a top hat. You don't own a top hat. No, I don't own a top hat. You're right. You're right. You'd have to buy one specifically to do that. I would if I lived in within sight of the, uh, the Hollywood sign. My view is um, depressing. Um, Have you ever been to the La Brea Tar Pits? Yes. Oh, yes. I said that so enthusiastically. It was you'd think that I spent all my time there. Uh, no, I have. It's they're really. It's really interesting. That's a strange, great middle of Los Angeles reminder that dinosaurs roamed just where you're standing waiting for your call back to start. So that's a nice reminder that everything is meaningless in a really good way, actually. Yeah, I, it's a good... Have you been? Uh, yeah, I did. Well, I mean, but the reason I went is kind of pathetic because uh, they're sort of featured in the movie Last Action Hero, and, um, and when I went to Los Angeles, I was just like, oh, I'll go to that place uh, where the, all the tar is from Last Action Hero. And, right. uh, and it's nothing like it is in the film, uh, but um, yeah. it's a good afternoon, I thought. I really, I really enjoyed it. I loved it. Um, but it's weird because Los Angeles feels sort of like... Um, it's very uh, business orientated, isn't it? And it feels like there's sort of a lack of culture. And then, like you say, you go to this place where there's tar and they've got all of like, these fossilised dinosaur bones that have been there for millions and millions of years. And it's kind of like, yeah, it's like this oasis of history in this place, which is all very new. Yeah, um, and then you have the 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 art museum right next to it where there's i mean it's it's a strange strip that on wilshire boulevard right there because yeah you have like i I feel like it's not just a modern art museum so you have like you know historical 
cave I, I don't know do we go all the way back to cave drawings probably not but you know the the great dutch masters and so forth and and then like weird modern sculptures and and dinosaur bones and then the the sag uh screen actors guild office is just a hop skip and a jump away from that so it is it's a it's a strange city i would say um i was very reluctant to move here um i did not have you know i lived in san francisco which is uh, arguably one of the more european cities if there are any at all in america um you know just a sort of tightly packed uh culturally diverse little small test city where you can really see when something passes and doesn't go well or does go well there's this sort of immediate reaction that everyone feels um but i i loved all of that and and so coming to la i was i had started to get work and uh and i was i was really reluctant but now i love living here and i actually wouldn't go back to san francisco and and i think where the culture exists is in is in pockets like it's in pockets of neighborhoods and um there there's a ton of of culture and a ton of multiculture in los angeles you just kind of have to know where to go because otherwise you sort of do i think you get stuck with the veneer of of you know la Mm -hmm. capital l capital a what does that even mean where am i you know Mm. how do you find how do you find uh the the business at the moment I've been really lucky. I I was on a show uh, that was shooting when we shut down and uh, and we were able to go back to work in September and finish out our season. Uh, so I just finished that last week, um, going in and, and rehearsing in a K95 mask and everyone in the crew uh, had like a face, a gla- goggles or their own glasses, a face shield and a, and a, k95 mask and they never took them off anywhere on the set and then we would the actors would do everything in a mask and then you know when they called action you sort of take off the mask somebody comes and quickly tries to you know get the red smear that whatever the like chafing of your face (laughs) fixed and then we would shoot um and it was certainly different and hard because you don't get to just sort of hang out with people when you're not um, rolling uh, because there is a sort of social distancing. It was very, very responsible and and very sanitized, Uh, but it was really nice to go into work again. You know, it it felt um, I've been able to do some voiceover stuff uh, and a a lot of live streaming stuff from home um, and I am very much kind of a a homebody, so I I love where I live and, and I like nest um but even so getting you know going into work and seeing people and like hi we're in person together well oh my gosh there's so many of you it started to feel like a like a luxury just to be in a room and look around and go like oh my gosh there's 20 people in here this is a what a village we have here um it was nice it was it, re- it really was like oh yeah social creatures make sense sure like work our hearts are calling out for this that's a real thing you know I think I found that. I think I, I think of myself as being very much a homebody and someone that likes likes my own company. Can I'm, I never get bored? I've got stuff to do. I'm always, you know, oh, you're always <laughs> decorating your walls, etc. Um, <laughs> but I think this has really made me think. Do you know what? I do actually like people. I forget. But it's it's really nice to go out and see people. You want to know it's your choice. It's your you want to be invited to the party, feel like you'd be welcome there, and then promptly say yes, and then immediately cancel, or you know just say no to begin with. But the point is, it's happening. You know, your people are out there. 
Yeah. Right. And then you don't go. That's like me. Yeah. Or I can show up early doors and then sneak off quite early. Oh, don't you just love that? It's wonderful. Oh, yeah. Everyone, you get the, you get the one-on-one time with the host, a lot of meaningful eye contact, and then just, oop. Oh, I, you know, I thought heard a noise outside and then I went home. I attend parties like I'm trying to, to uh, establish an alibi for a murder. I make sure everyone's <laughs> seen me. They've all seen me there. Afterwards, I go, I was there. Yes. No, the last, the last oh, I'm totally stealing that bit. That's genius. Yeah, party, very much so. The last party you went to, Nat, was my party. Uh-oh. Yeah. Okay, bye. I would say at the beginning of lockdown, when everything was being cancelled, was kind of like my favourite part of it, which was just kind oh, of... Oh, really? Like, I had a tour, that, and I was getting very anxious and nervous about having to go on tour, and then it was just like, oh, that's been delayed by a year. And you go, oh, a year? That's a year away. And now it's yeah. like three months away, and it's like, well, that year's gone by really quickly. I've got to get nervous again. So, do you think that the tour in th- within three months, do you think we'll be in a, a place where that goes ahead as planned? No, I don't think well, so. Look, you're going to be just fine. Be I get that, though. I get that, though. There was a sense of, I, you know, I, I have a podcast and I, um, I was talking to uh, Colin Mockery. Do you know who that is? Oh, yeah. He's a, he's, yeah, great improviser. And he was on two different tours when it happened. And, you know, he's just like the most humble, gracious, you know, self-effacing, quiet person when he's not on stage. In fact, he calls his, his stage persona the other uh, because he's so kind of embarrassed by the person he turns into when he's <laughs> improvising. Um, but he, he was like, you know, oh, oh, oh I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say this is a good thing. Of course, it's a very bad, very bad thing. But but uh, I did get to go home and spend time with my family, and uh, you know th- what? A, what a gift! Uh, so he he definitely felt that sort of initial, like, oh, so I can't go, I can't be stressed out. I really have to just. Um, I, I I definitely relate to that. You've had some amazing guests on your uh, on your podcast, haven't you? I have, I have. Yeah, I've been lucky to be. Uh, I think the comedy community is. Um, is very welcoming in terms of stuff like that because uh, even, I mean, my podcast I've been doing for about eight and a half years. So there weren't a ton of podcasts then, even though I remember thinking almost nine years ago, like, Oh, I can't start a podcast. Everybody has a podcast and how wrong I was. (laughs) But I, uh, but I think because people who are, in the kind of alt comedy world, but also I'm sure the the more mainstream, it's just not as much of what I dip a toe into. Everybody's a self-starter. Everyone understands what it feels like to want to have something going on that you, that's yours, that you're not waiting for the phone to ring uh, to be able to do what you, what you do. Um, and so I think there's a lot of support there for, for peers who, you know, who go, oh yeah, okay, sure. You got a thing. I know what it feels like to have a thing and want someone to do it. You know, yeah, I'll make time for that. So I've been, I've been really lucky in that regard. And you've been maintaining doing. It's called the the JV Club, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And you've been maintaining that through lockdown or through um, the pandemic. Yeah, I, that was another thing that I mean, uh, so many people had to figure out technology in a way that they hadn't before, and even me. I mean, I I remember thinking like mm, I'm in pretty good shape, you know. I've I do I, I report record my podcast from home. People come over to me, um, you know. I have the gear. I kind of know what to do. And then I got a cartoon job that was going to record every week. And when I got this sort of rundown of what they needed of me in terms of the quality of what I could do, I 
realized very quickly that I was in over my head. But uh, but many people were sort of, you know, buying microphones uh, like very quickly and, and you know, it, with a sense of urgency and uh, learning how to do stuff. So I have not had a problem at all. In fact, I was ahead, not perhaps surprisingly. I, I was like, oh, I've never had so many episodes banked. Like no one has anything going on except to do these. So here we are. Like I've, you know, I was, I, I was for the first time, uh, having to say to people, um, because I only, I t- typically only interview men over the summer. It's just when I started the podcast, I was just interviewing women because there weren't a lot of women in podcasting in general. Um, and then, uh, and then I expanded, uh, about a year in year or two into my, what I call my boys of summer series. Um, and, uh, and, I, I realized like in June that I had more episodes with, with great men than I could. I, I was already stretching past uh, into September. And so and I had to say, I know it's the beginning of summer, but somehow I don't, I can't interview this person because I don't have room. Um, and that, and now I'm totally not, I mean, I, now I have, you know, one episode for this week and immediately I'm, you know, who's my, who am I recording next? Ha 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 ha. Or I won't get it done in time. So in the before that, times, that was short lived. In the before times, used to record in a studio, and now I love the idea of not having to go to a studio and just staying in my um, white walled uh, cell of a room that I live in and not have to travel. I find this is yeah. a real advantage. But also, it's had like a knock on effect. I mean, we get to talk to people like you in Los Angeles and all over the all over the world, really. And it's kind of like before; it was kind of like who's available on a Friday? At oh, midday? sure. Absolutely. No, I agree. It, 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 um, it, it, it absolutely made that possible for me as well. I was talking to somebody, I mean, because I was like you and I, I could have done more of this since I was doing it from home, but I really want, I liked the, you know, let's be in a, let's be on a sofa together. Let's, you know, I want to be able to have meaningful eye contact or not worry about cutting the other person off. And sometimes when I do do just phone interviews, there is that over speak where somebody, well, yeah. Okay. Oh, do you should I oh no why don't you go ahead you know there is that sort of stumbling but once you have speak to somebody who's in Ireland you know uh there is a real sense of like ooh, I'm really stretching my wings here maybe it's worth a stumble or two to make this happen you know and on top of that so you're the co-founder and creative director of uh Sketchfest which is yes. based in San Francisco yes uh, yeah and you've had some absolutely not happening in January. Not happening. Mm. Uh, we well, I mean, I don't know whether I would have done Edinburgh this year. I think I would have come off yeah. like four, and then maybe I'd have maybe I'd have done work in progress in Edinburgh and sort of tried to come up with another show to tour next year. I don't know. Everything's different now. <laughs> yeah. It keeps going on and on and on. You know, the coronavirus. You know, I think originally it was like it's two weeks. And everyone's like, okay, we can, we can deal with two weeks. And now it's like, well, it's probably going to be two years. If, yeah. if, not, if not, or maybe this is just how it is now. And uh, so, yeah. so it's kind of the technology, the technological side of it has really sort of like meant that, you know, we're having to relearn what our job, what our job is. Or, or like, um, or get used to a new way of doing things which might be more permanent than than we thought and so yeah. what is it like in los angeles though? are you allowed what are you allowed to do and what are you not allowed to do currently good question i'd love to hear also from you uh about what it's been like there um i uh i you know it's 
I would like to say that, like, I remember the first month or two, every all the reports were, and this is before the fires, uh, you know, the air in Los Angeles is better than it's literally ever been on record. And there was just, you you know, if you were walking down the street, and many of us were, I think that was the thing I turned to the most quickly, was just like, put a mask on, get out there, wander around, get out of the house. Um, uh there really just weren't, there was no traffic. And um, that is a huge piece of what makes Los Angeles, Los Angeles. And so that was extraordinary. Like I live in the Hills. And so looking back out at the city, it was just crystal clear. You know, I can, you can see all the way to the ocean, which is a fair distance from, from where I live. And, um, and there was something kind of magical about it and people, and, and for a while they were so worried about the virus that they closed the trails in the park, which I was, very upset about um but uh but it's true that people were just huffing and puffing not wearing masks like on these tiny trails sort of breathing onto each other um but for the couple even like the two or three weeks that they closed those there were all these reports of you know the deer population is recent you know like the the coyotes are like there's a lot of sort of nature watching happening um and uh, and all of that was kind of, you know, we all have, I think so many of us have that fascination with the apocalypse that, you know, you kind of, a little hint of that sort of, sort of thrilling, like, ooh, all the, all the bunnies are taking the trails back over because they're not afraid of people's dogs. Like, ooh, it's the end of the world. Wait, it's the end of the world. Um, but, but now, you know, restaurants are Restaurants are open. Um, I don't know how much indoor seating there is, but I, it's, we have not had to lock back down to the point where everything's just takeout or anything like that. I see people, lots of seating outside. The weather's temperate, you know, so that's not in November. We're about to have like a 91-degree day, which is ghastly. Um, but for the most part, you know, it's in the 70s, it's in the 60s. Um, and, and like I said, I was able to go back to work um, so it feels, it certainly feels more normal than it did. And, and part of that has included like traffic feels kind of normal again, sort of, oh, okay. I guess we're up and running enough that suddenly everyone's in their car again, which is not great. But how about with you? Well, at midnight tonight, we enter lockdown two. We're going back in, back mm -hmm. into lockdown yeah. for, uh, for a second. Well, apparently just for a month, but we shall see whether, whether we are just for a month. As Nick says, the first one I think was. Yeah, I think it was. I think I remember people going, "It's three weeks, then we'll be, then we'll be back." It's it's yeah. it's almost like it's a great way of introducing a pandemic to people, though. I think <laughs> very much giving them. We, we were told very early on, "There's not. It's fine. We're basically staying indoors for three weeks. And just catch up yeah. on all your all your <laughs> TV shows and things. It's a little opportunity right. for everyone." And then yeah. after three weeks, it just kind of just kind of kept going. Kept going and going, yeah. and everyone started wondering whether is it is it three weeks or is it? Yeah, I feel like we've been here how's, a lot longer than three weeks. How's the? I I mean, I'm sure I read about this, but um, but how how is the sort of like like social support, like government support of the economy? You know, in terms of like one of the problems here, as I'm sure you know, is that just so much back and forth about you know, how much support can people be given uh, in this time? How, how you know, what's possible? How, how bad is the unemployment rate going to get? And then you look at someplace like, um, uh, like Denmark, 
right, who I believe just sort of just continued to make sure everyone got paid something. And because it's such a small world that, you know, such an insular country that they were like, oh, yeah, we'll shut down entirely. But you won't even notice it in the bank, in your bank account. Like, there, you know what I mean? Did, where, where does where does the UK Well, fall? a lot of people were furloughed. So a lot of people were given 80% of their earnings that were paid gotcha. for by the government. Gotcha. Which was handy. But if you were self-employed, there was a whole other system that was based on... Um, a lot of people didn't seem to qualify, even though they absolutely should have qualified and could mm. say, I'm entirely self-employed. Or oh, So there's lots great. of funny rules like that. Some people haven't earned any money. Some people are lucky enough to be able to, to do things online and things. But there's a lot of work. There's certainly like the live comedy world is gone virtually. Mm. It's that kind of... Um, and lots of people trying to do gigs in that way that feels very well, let's put on a show right here. But ultimately, when you see it, it looks like some weird Mad Max Transformers universe of people yeah. trying to put put on gigs in, like, junkyards yeah. and... Like, well, we've, had, we've, we've been doing um, drive-in comedy gigs where people t- turn up in a car park and sit in their cars and then someone tells jokes at the front of this car park and then if people like the jokes, they beat their horns and you go, fuck that, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I didn't know that the beeping was going to be happening. It's like, that sounds awful. Yeah, but also... I think I'd rather just kind of see through the reflection whether they're chuckling or not and not hear anything at all than hear beeping. That's so, it's, it's so, kind of un- like, that's so jarring. Like, we, oh. we all want a gig again, but not like that. Come on. And uh, and because we're in the arts, um, we've just the government came up with a poster campaign last week where we were all told, "What's the name of the girl?" It's a ballerina called Fatima. Oh, Fatima. Yeah. So well, I think that that was turned out not to be. That was an old thing at the end. I think it was an old thing, was it? Yeah. Oh well, it, it, it resurfaced, and everyone in the arts was told to retrain in what was it in cyber. cyber. They said, yeah, be like Fatima and retrain in cyber. And it was this little girl putting on ballet shoes. It's just like, what the fuck does retrain in cyber mean? I mean, <laughs> and so it's, it feels like it's... Uh, maybe if it was an old thing, maybe it wasn't the worst timing ever, but it mm. resurfaced at a time where it just felt like we're being kicked when we're down. Mm. Um, I think, you know, uh, as much as things aren't great in the States, it does feel like our country's very much following suit in all of the... There just is no interest in the arts other than it's what everyone's been watching for the last eight months. There's a disconnect there. It's like, yeah, it's like what, what what would you have done? What would you have done in the whole of lockdown if it wasn't for if it wasn't for the arts? Like people would have people would have got divorced and, and meltdowns and you know, it's got people through it's got people through it and people think that it just appears out of nowhere and it's kind of like, No, this is our job, you know. Yeah. Um, but do, I, do, do you find that everybody I mean, the other part I would imagine is the anxiety. I mean, I'm not, I don't do stand up, but the idea of coming up with new material, knowing that you're sort of having the exact same experiences as everybody else and trying to think about like, can I, can't, can I call back something from my youth that I haven't joked about yet? Because making a joke about something quarantine related feels like how can you not feel hacky? Even if it's the most brilliant idea you've ever had to think, but doesn't it, probably everyone is writing this same stuff, right? Yeah. I think that if Edinburgh does, it is possible to go ahead next year, they should probably not do it anyway. 
and just give everyone a year <laughs> just to have a life so that they've got something to write about. Because I'm just picturing like a thousand stand-up shows, you know, that are all about lockdown, all about coronavirus, and you just think, fuck it. I mean, even if I've got an idea for a show, I probably don't even want to go up to Edinburgh and have to sit through anyone else's, so... Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I'm finding writing stuff about actual stand-up, I'm finding that difficult, but that just means that I'm just sort of, like, working on, like, old, older ideas that yeah. are, you know, fiction, you know? I think it's, 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 it's one of those things as well where it feels like it's absolutely the elephant in the room as well, where it'd almost be insane not to mention it. Right. Just go, hey, so, um... <laughs> who likes yeah. waffles? That's, which is my regular <laughs> right. material, of course. <laughs> Who likes waffles? Because everybody likes a, waffles. Yeah, yeah. But it just it's feels exactly like such good. an odd time not to mention it. Especially if you're yeah. talking to, you know, essentially, you know, a, a car park full of transformers who are sentient <laughs> machines who are beeping at you and things. But on the, on the positive side, on the positive side of, of this, uh, I was outside a few months ago and I saw a fox in the middle of the day. That's what this is what I'm talking about. We have I live in a neighborhood where um, there's such a celebration of the mountain lion that um, has survived in this region um, and has kind of a a wide territory. Uh, Its name is P22. um, So very, very personal name. Uh, But it's but it's so ingrained in us now that P22 feels like its name might as well be Basil. Like, oh, P22. Um, And there's a P22 day that happens in Griffith Park every year. And P22 has absolutely been exploring neighborhoods um, much more often than not. And people, everybody has like a a ring cam or, you know, some sort of security camera uh, in this area. So there are just these posts in these community forums of people's you know, weird burglar footage of this stalking mountain lion, you know, walking past their Tesla. So it's one specific mountain lion. Yeah, because there can only be there can only be one. It's the Highlander of Griffith Park, but it's all it's it, it's its territory stretches across freeways. So that's one of the reasons that people are so astonished by by it um, is that you know there's you can getting across the 405 freeway uh, if you're a, a wild animal seems unlikely at best but it's oh, somehow you, tra- you mean traverses it's, it's like a its own pride of lions or it's one single lion that everyone's it's one seen. it's one single lion that everyone's seeing was everyone seeing the same guy the same guy is everyone's seeing the same guy it's yeah yeah it's a real it's a real celebrity sighting wow. does that sort of bring together a sense of community then yeah it does. It really does. Because the, because also, you know, I don't know if you have, do you have something like, we have something here called Nextdoor, which is this app or, you know, you can certainly do it on your computer, but it is, uh, it, it exists in app form as well, where you sign up and you start getting alerts uh, from various, you know, if you, like, okay, this is your, oh, you do. Natalie says we do have that. You do have that. Um, so, you know, what it ends up being is like, the idea is great and you see a lot of really lovely sort of like i have a bunch of extra mulch that i don't need does anyone like that's what you want to think it is all the time but it's also a place for people to attack each other get into like politics and you know um there's a lot of like crime mongering there's you know there's 
there's a lot of well, crimes worse now than it ever was. And you sort of go, well, is it or, or am I just hearing about your car being broken into because there was no way I would ever have heard about that since you live three miles from me? You know, why would I have known that if it weren't for this place where all this information is being pooled? Um, so there's you know, it just it just degenerates quickly, I think, into um a lot of like you know someone's like well the homeless situation is so out of control well if you understood better how the economy is blah, 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 well i don't know you listen you you well, you and your voting is really what's ruined this city like there's just a lot of that so when it's something as simple as you know i saw a fox in the middle of the street or p22 came past my car people I are like oh, oh this between... is great <laughs> yeah it feels like there's a big difference between a fox which, which i can imagine i think if i saw a lion go past my window now I really would think it was the end of the world. I think it's, I'd be absolutely uh, terrified. Yeah, yeah. Is it I mean, not we, terrifying? This, this he, I mean, it is a little terrifying. Okay. But nobody ever seems to get attacked. Um, but people, but there are also a lot of coyotes, and there absolutely have been, you know, people's cats go, go you know, they vanish, and people's small dogs disappear from time to time, and... That's, I guess, the agreement that you make when you and they and coyotes are everywhere in Los Angeles. So it, that already is, you know, you will see a coyote trotting across, you know, the La Brea tar pits uh, in the afternoon from time to time, and it's like, oh, okay, well, we all have to live together, I guess. But what's the coyote's relationship to the mountain lion? I think they just stayed out of each other's way. I don't know that the. I think they're both eating deer, but probably the, there are smaller animals that the coyotes end up with, including pets. So they don't, you don't, it's not like the coyotes are the bad guys. And then you've got kind of like this mountain lion, which is kind of like protecting everyone, like some sort of superhero. I'm, like some sort of the Lion King movie. Uh, yeah, no, 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 I, I don't think so. I don't think so. It's a real ecology uh, out here. But it's cool. I mean, I love that stuff. I do. Same thing with bobcats. We have also bobcats, smaller, shorter tail. Uh, there's lots of those sightings because um, there are, can be more bobcats per capita, I guess, uh, in a territory. But yeah, I mean, I love all of that. That's all stuff that I really wanted to live in a place where I could, you know, leave my house on foot and within 10 minutes kind of not really see that much of the city and 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 feel like I was intermingling with other critters yeah, i guess i don't know if that is a cultural difference whereas i just think a lion to me is so exotic and mad <laughs> that i would never the idea of one being around right but it's a mountain lion nathaniel sure yeah it's not, it's not yeah like it's a, not like a lion off the plains of africa it's it's like it's a mountain <laughs> lion the, the, the confusing yeah. thing about mountain lions is that they have a bunch of different names that are all legit, like a puma or a, 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 a cougar. I think like those are all the same. Okay. Puma is a cougar is a mountain lion. Okay. okay. Does any one of those sound less? No, they all sound terrifying. Sure, sure. I guess a fox is is just a different... It's a different. It's literally a different breed. Man, but it's, I it, love. I can. I never. I've never seen a fox in oh, real life. We get them all the time. But yeah. to see one in the middle of the day that's sort of like walking down the street, going like, "All right," <laughs> you're like, Whoa, "You're brave." All right, fine. Yeah, we're doing that now. Uh -huh. <laughs> you have a different idea of foxes. 
You don't have like <laughs> yeah. the foxes you see here don't tend to be like um it's not like Disney's Robin Hood. These ones right. look like they've they've had a hard life. A lot of them don't look like. Oh, they are. Life. That's a, so. They probably are more like coyotes because coyotes definitely. You see some real cute ones, and then you see some real snaggle tooths that have like yeah. mange. You sort of see like, oh, most of your fur is gone, huh? That's disturbing. Uh, foxes <laughs> also make the maddest sound, which is terrifying. Yeah. I don't. There are a bunch of animals. It turns out that make sounds that I somehow went my whole life without knowing what they sounded like. Like porcupine. I, I, we all only found out. For me, I only found out what a porcupine sounded like because of the internet, like three years ago. I had no idea that porcupines make the sounds that they make. What does a porcupine sound like? It's like there's a video out there of a porcupine eating some pumpkin, and it's like. <laughs> and it's been confirmed that that is, in fact, what a porcupine sounds like. Yum, 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 yum. Come on. I mean, How did we not know this? This has been incredibly, incredibly educational. Right? Look That's at us. Look at us zoologists. If you live in an area with a high uh, fox population, you will think that, if, yeah, so if your neighbors lived in an area with a high fox population, they would report that people were being murdered outside their houses every night. Because if they just oh, scream, sure. they scream like, and it sounds like a human scream. It's when they're having sex. I believe it is when yeah. they're having I sex. I guess cats are like that too, right? I mean, even just alley cats are very scary when they're having sex. They sound okay. very, very Absolutely, scary. they scratch me. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> um, Non-COVID-related joke, write it down. <laughs> Here we come, Edinburgh. I reckon I can get five minutes out of that. Um, oh, for sure. Just really ring it out. Just ring it out. Well, apparently foxes have barbed penises as well. They, they have like... What uh, so many animals do? It seems uh, unnecessary, right? I mean, yeah. It seems unnecessary. Yes. Uh, evidently yeah. is necessary. I guess so, but it's... Why, why make it... Why, why is it going to be harder than it needs to be? I know. I know. Awful. <laughs> Okay, right. so, um, so Janet, oh, that got serious. You're, you're, you're not, you're not a stand-up comedian, but um, no. you've, you, you do improv and uh, sketch comedy. Is that so? That's that's where you started out, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't when I was a kid. I just took theater and stuff, and I, I shied away from any kind of improv team or anything comedy related. Even though I loved that was the stuff that I grew up with and, and loved. It was very much a, um, what if I suck? Like, you know, people saying, well, you're funny. You should, nah, nah, nah. and I think that I, I was, I was the kind of person who really thought, you know, better to always wonder if it would have, if I would have been good at something than to try it and fail. Um, and so I, I really shied away from that. And, and I, it wasn't until I was, you know, over 20 that, um, that even though I had done theater and stuff my, my whole life, just in school, I mean, I wasn't like a kid with an agent or anything like that, but um, that I started doing improv and, and, um, and that's, that is definitely what led to me kind of moving down to, to Los Angeles and stuff. Um, I was just doing that stuff for fun. Uh, and then someone came and told me that I could make money doing it and it was terrifying, but also <laughs> exhilarating. Was um, in, in the States then, because I'd say over here, maybe it's just a smaller world, but the sketch comedy world, um, the stand-up world, I guess perhaps because of the Edinburgh Festival, feels like it's a much more closed space and very much adjacent to each other. 
So lots of people from one will do the other. Um, and I guess somewhere like Edinburgh maybe more... has a community. Yeah, I think that's, I don't know that that's what I find on a regular basis. I I think here stand-up is definitely, there's certainly overlap, but I think I've even observed that in the UK, there tends to be more crossover than mm-hmm. in the States. There's a lot of, I oh, I only do stand-up. I could never do what you do. And, oh, I only do improv. The idea of doing stand-up is terrifying. I think there's, there's a, there is, there, in the, I mean, I hate saying the alt comedy world, but, that it, there is the most overlap there, I think, um, but it's still there's still kind of a a separation, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a little bit of a separation here, but it does feel like, you know, it feels almost like mm-hmm. they're it feels like everyone's pals in a way. Yeah, as yeah. a, a kind of um, yeah, it feels like very much adjacent to each other. Do you think there's a divide anyway between um, sketch stand up and um, improv and things in the States. Do you think there's a more of a... I mean, stand-up is just more universally desired by the public. Um, you know, stand-up comedy clubs are uh, are prolific and there's very little room to do... I mean, that's what I found in San Francisco when I was starting stuff. Uh, I was in a sketch troupe and there was almost nowhere to do sketch. Um, and if, you know, the, the comedy clubs are very welcoming, but then you go there and realize like, oh, I, I have a wig change <laughs> and there's four of us and four of us won't fit on this stage. So we shouldn't have confirmed this gig. Um, and then audiences like, you know, drunk bachelorette <laughs> parties were not, they did not want to see, you know, my take on like Mormon missionaries. They wanted one person to f- rapid fire punchlines at them nonstop um and so you know we that's kind of why we started the festivals because we had met these other sketch groups that were kind of experiencing the same thing but you had to rent a theater for a month in san francisco which is prohibitively expensive and also who wants to do their sketch like what are you going to do seven shows a week doing your 45 minute like goofy you know mid-20s early 20s like level age level writing no you don't want to do that so we 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 got together with them and we would have kind of everybody got the chance to perform and do their set with someone else's so we were kind of trying to pollinate audiences and um and just have a a home where everybody could kind of do something together for a month and that's what grew into the the festival that we have now which is sketch and improv and music and film tributes and you know tv panels and all that kind of stuff but uh it very much had its roots in well shit we can't perform anywhere what do we do Because I mean, what I would say, I don't, I don't really agree with Nathaniel in terms of this cross pollination. What I would say was stand up. The point of stand up is to sort of pretend that you, there aren't any conventions to it. You're trying to. It's like a magic trick where you're trying to convince the audience that you've just stepped on stage. You're just a regular guy, just like them. And you just stepped on stage and you're just talking off the top of your head. As soon as you bring in conventions like scenes, characters, costumes, everything like that, then it's kind of like, it's basically you're highlighting the fact that it is constructed, you know, that it's that it's fake. And that's sort of the opposite of what stand-up is. But then if you're working in sketch yeah. and improv, you know... Um, I my favourite part of writing is um, is work in progress because I know that it can be different every single time I get up on stage until I've written the show, 
and then it's the same. And once the show is written, it's kind of like you sort of... You're not going through the motions, but there is a point when you've been touring the same thing for, like, three months. By the end of it, you're, like, going, all right, I've only got five more shows to get through, and then we then we can move on. And sure. I think... Um, so what, what do you prefer? Do you prefer um, the... Have you ever improvised something that's so good that you've gone, right, I'll write that down, and then that's become a sketch? I think the I think I thought that's going to be what was going to happen when I was doing I was taking improv and doing more sketch. Um, but what kind of developed quickly was uh, a, an, just a laziness um, that improv allows. Like if you get good, and the idea is if you get good enough and if you do it often enough, you don't have to get anything ready at all. Uh, and you could just show up somewhere and if it's good, you feel like a genius. And if it's bad, you can go, ah, it was just an off night. Eh, eh, you know, just was it just wasn't great. Or the, you could blame it on the crowd or whatever. Um, it is, it is really the laziest version of comedy because you, you, if you have these moments of genius, you, you know, again, I don't know that I've ever had one, but there's certainly as a group. And that's one of the things I love about it and why I don't feel drawn to stand up is, um, is that I really love having people have my back. I really, I think I do better when I'm a surrounded by people who I think are funnier than I am. And, and, and also that if I have a moment where I'm sort of drawing a blank, that I'm working with a group of people with whom I have, you know, in whom I have utter confidence that we're going to save this thing together and that I have no ego about that. I don't feel like, oh, I was, I was, that was bad. That was a bad moment for me. And I, and I stink because, you know, Hal had to come in and rescue me. Um, it feels very much like a give and take and that, you know, if you work with people long enough, everybody has the chance to, to have all of those different kinds of moments. Um, and I love, and I love the trust of that. I mean, I really do. I'm such a, I'm such a nerd. I'm just a big, you know, nerd, hippie nerd. Like we, I, the most improv I do now, I have two different groups. Um, one I don't improvise with except for maybe once or twice a year uh, at Sketchfest, which is um, like these just powerhouse, like John Michael Higgins and Michael Hitchcock, who are in all of Christopher Guest's films, Rachel Dratch from Saturday Night Live, Oscar Nunez from The Office, um, Simon Helberg when he can from Big Bang Theory. And, uh, and they're just an amazing, amazing group. And I don't get to improvise with them often enough because we all kind of live in different places. But then the, I improvise with a group called the Work Juice Players, which is a sort of spinoff of this um, live and podcast show called the Thrilling Adventure Hour that I've been part of for almost 10 years. Um, but it's filled with just phenomenal improvisers. Um, and you know, it feels, it's so lovely to be backstage with them and do just stupid. We don't do really warm ups, but just that moment before the show starts, I'm filled with such love for them. Like, Oh, I love these people. Um, that's, that's where the high is for me. It's not even the audience really. It's just the, it's, it's, it's making, if I can see that I've done something that's inspired a person I think is brilliant and who cares about me. Um, and that, you know, elicits some kind of response. Um, that's just the best feeling. And so I don't know how I would do if I were by myself. I think I would probably burn out really quickly and like hate myself. I had a similar experience one year, one Edinburgh, in fact, I did, I did a sketch show with some friends who were unsure whether they wanted to do it. 
I'd never written, tried to write sketches before. And I thought I'd write with them and we'd do this show. And we did it for three weeks. And I found exactly the same thing in that I thought it was so much easier because I always felt that even if the show was going badly, I didn't care as much because there was two other people having exactly the same experience. And yet at the end of it, I was like, nah, I'd much rather have a much worse time and have this like really, it felt like I was cheating or something. And at the end of it, I had this kind of like, oh, it was much nicer, like much nicer. And yet I, I, at the end of it, it must be something masochistic or something. It's like part of it is that I kind of hate it. Is why I like this. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you, I, I think it. that makes sense. I think that makes sense. I mean, I definitely feel you know, like my my friend, one of the people with whom I improvise quite regularly, at least would I would we would do a once at least a once a month show um, before all this, and we have not. He's been doing more stuff online. I I have not done any improvising online, but his name is Paul F. Tompkins, and he's one of the best stand-ups I've ever seen. I mean, I came into his life as a huge fan, um, and and I was doing improv before he was, and then he started doing improv with the Work Juice players and, of course, was just immediately brilliant because he's... uh, He kind of had all the tools, whether he was actively you know, working on them or not, they were happening. And he's, he's so, he's so great. And, uh, he's a great example of somebody who I feel like can just walk between those worlds effortlessly. And, you know, he just has a great time doing both. Um, but I, again, I don't know a ton of people who seem to have almost an equal relationship to each. And Mm -hmm. so there are a lot of conversations that happen, uh, among friends in comedy where, like I was saying before, like I say, I don't get why you, why would you want to do that? I, I didn't, I, I mean, I like being at home at night. If I could do shows maybe during at brunch, like I, you know, but it, <laughs> the sun goes down and the last thing I want to do is go to an open mic and, you know, try to have to do something for a bunch of times. Like everything you're talking about, Nick, about developing the show, that all makes perfect sense to me. And yet it sounds horrible. Oh, like it's I, like that all makes sense. And I, yet I still think, Oh God, I don't need any more reasons to beat myself up. And I, I would find them all if I were doing yeah. that. You know, it's, I mean, the I, more I think about it, I go, it's horrible. I find it terrifying. <laughs> I find, I find it terrifying. And also having this, having this, um, having this break from live performance, you only get rustier as it, you know, it takes about two weeks to get really rusty as a stand up. And this has been months, and it's kind of like the idea of getting up on stage is just terrifying. Last Edinburgh, I wrote a musical, and that was with uh, five other people. And I did a stand-up show where I did an hour on my own, and I found that terrifying every single day. And then my musical was like this horror musical that was all creepy, and, and I, it was the happiest I've ever been on stage, to the point that... I was smiling throughout the entire thing when we were meant to be kind of like creepy and everything. I just came out every day with this huge, massive. You can, we had a, we had an early recording where we we recorded off the sound desk all of our microphones, and you can just hear me sort of like giggling at my microphone for the entire hour, like ruining the yeah. thing. But I loved I it. I love working great. with people. Yeah. Look, Jack Nicholson has played plenty of creepy characters and he's constantly smiling. So (laughs) you can you can work it in. You can work it in. Well, I I directed it, so I didn't mind fucking it up. It's fine. 
Yeah, there you I go. think we've learned um, that the correct way to do it work is with other people, and that's that's you, you've chosen more wisely than we have, I think. And, and yet, people want more of what you do. So listen, it's it all well, even out. Not specifically somehow. more of what we do, but genre. Theory. It's all just on paper at this point. Uh, we've, uh, we've, we've come to the end of uh we've got we've got to play a game with you before we go right um, but before we do that is there anything specific that you want to plug um we talked about my podcast the jv club uh i have uh i guess the only other thing that i would say is not exactly new but um i got to make a web series that everybody can watch um on i think it's just on youtube now as well as ifc but uh, a, a little show that I created and co-wrote and starred in called Fortune Rookie, in which I play a sort of shittier version of myself who uh, is told by someone in a bathroom that I have psychic powers. And so I decide to quit the business and become a sort of fortune teller full time um, without any knowledge of what it takes to do that. And um, like with the podcast, I got a, an in, just an obscene amount of really talented, far more famous people to do it with me. And so the first episode, you know, Fred Armisen is sort of the first other person that you see on screen. And, um, and it's it's weird and super fun and i'm so proud of it and it was like you were saying the reason i thought of it with the horror musical is i'm just giddy the whole time like i'm just having to tamp down the joy every second that we made that thing um so it's called fortune rookie little uh pun on fortune uh. cookie and uh and yeah you can just watch it on youtube now having said that can you see it in the uk i may have had this conversation before where there it's like hard to find uh or impossible i don't know so i've said now i've promoted something that's utterly people, have ways. Enjoy. people have ways of finding these things okay okay, okay. Steal it. so janet it is now yes. time for me to hand over to nathaniel and he is going to play the game Okay. okay, Nathaniel, explain the rules. Okay, this game is called Better or Worse, and you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my own opinions. Okay? On your opinions? On my opinions, correct. Okay. Beginning with Goldie Horn. Goldie Horn, high card, but is Pierce Brosnan better or worse than Goldie Horn? In terms of what you think, what I think you think. Yes. Worse. Worse. Not necessarily bad, just worse than Goldie Hawn. Yeah. Piers Morgan, better or worse than Piers Brosnan. Oh, I, oh, so I can just cheat and listen to all of Nick's answers. Yeah, but I don't... I don't he doesn't know, know each other. That's just your opinion. Barely know each other. Barely know each other. Yeah. Barely know each other. That's just what he thinks. <laughs> well, that's what he thinks Piers I Morgan, think. Piers Morgan, worse. Worse. Yeah, the worst. Morgan Freeman, better or worse than... Piers Morgan. Better. 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 Martin Freeman. Better or worse than Morgan Freeman? I would guess better, but... Worse. Not necessarily necessarily bad. Just worse. (laughs) Martin Scorsese. Again, choice of words. Better or worse. Very interesting, considering that it's not worse, it's just worse. It's not worse. It's worse. Right. Okay, sorry. Martin Scorsese, better or worse than Martin Freeman? Better. I mean, better? Better. Yeah. Martin Sheen, better or worse than Martin Freeman? Hurry up, Nathaniel. Martin Sheen, better or worse than Martin Scorsese, worse. 
Worse, yeah. Charlie Sheen, better or worse than mine, Sheen? Worse. Correct. Emilio Estevez, better or worse than Charlie Sheen? Better. Better. Amelia Clark, better or worse than Emilio Estevez? Better? Worse, I think. (laughs) Clark Gable, better or worse than Amelia Clark? Uh, worse. Better. I think it's an eight. I think it's an eight. Sorry. Seven, seven. You got a seven. Okay, so so, so you scored a seven, which isn't as good as Jen Brister, Thomas Coombs, Jason Manford, Joey Skladaney with ten, Ken Cheng, Harry Hill, Luke Morley with nine, Susie Dent, Charles Eston, Eddie Hearn, David Hepworth, Magical Bones, Samantha Morton, Matt Okine, Miranda Raisin, Chris Stark and Stu Whiffen with eight, but is as good as James King, Henry Norman, Johnny Vegas with seven and better than Gary Delaney with six. So well done. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on our show, Jen. And I am, by the way, worse than all of the people you named, so it feels right. Better or worse? Better than us. So so I think it evens out, actually. Um, We're out of time. Thanks, everyone, for listening. That's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from Nathaniel. It's goodbye from Janet. Oh, yes, it's goodbye from me. And uh, uh, everyone stay safe, and uh, we'll listen to... uh, You listen to us next week, but we won't listen to you, unless you write into us, and then we'll read out your fan (laughs) mail. Thank you. All right, goodbye. Bye. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foo Bar Radio.